If you would open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 2, and then a finger there, and then in Isaiah 58, because we're going to kind of go back and forth a little bit today. And while you're doing that, Joe, would you cue video one and just flow right into video two, because I am not connected here for some reason. The one you see holding a brick is Pastor Lawrence, and I would, I would like to tell you that the work of... Uh, uh, of constructing a church building has already commenced and uh, you see the one you see is a church member they are also uh, doing a work here and everything is going on very well there you are there you are there you are what you see that's the foundation foundation they already put uh, rocks inside what what we call here uh, uh, core. And uh, the structure you see, that's a, a former church building. Thank you for the work. Thank you for everything. Thank you for every contribution you are making. May the Lord bless you abundantly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is the church that we began last year in uh, Kawalira Village in Uganda. And they're building this week with... That is the Shannon of uh, Conduit Uganda with the yellow. That is Eva, the wife of Pastor Lawrence. And Getting with stuff a, a done. church member trying to make what we call cement motor. That's the pastor, Pastor Lawrence. Yeah, that's Pastor Lawrence. Pastor loading, they just offloading the bricks. And uh, the work, I don't tell you, our brother and sisters in US, the work of uh, construction, constructing church building has already started. And uh, what you see inside is the old structure of a church building. There you are. A great work, a wonderful work is going on very well. We appreciate you for the love and every contribution you have done for us. May the Lord bless you. Thank you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to give you that quick update because some of you have donated towards this. It's about $20,000. This will be the fifth church building that we've built in other nations around the world. Uh, and I wanted to keep that in front of us because you might have noticed we're doing a lot of work in here. Uh, there's new carpet in the hallways. There's a new trim. And so uh, I, I felt personally that I'm okay with us doing that here locally as long as we don't have to stop what we're doing globally. And we sit, I believe, in a paid-for, debt-free 11 acres in the middle of the most expensive real estate in the Southeast because we were uh, courageously generous as a church to build and to, because uh, that, you know, that's not going to be just a church. It's going to be just kind of like we are. It's used every day of the week. It's going to be a clinic. It's going to be a school. It's going to be a church all being used as a gift to this community. We'll drill a well on that property, which is basically a progressive crusade. You know, you spend a lot of money for one crusade, but you drill a well, and every day it's a crusade because people are coming to the property with a chance to uh, encounter, and we're not charging for the water, but they get a chance to get clean water in an environment where they don't have it. That's, um, that's kind of what I want to talk to you about this morning in James chapter 2. What good is it? Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
by the way, that, that word that is an operative word in this. It's not can faith save him, it's can that specific kind of faith save him, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, well, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And then Isaiah 58, verse 1, and I hope you don't mind, I, I just, I want to read this, it's, I believe it's the word of God, and I believe that with or without a sermon that the word of God has power in it. So if you would read along with me, I'm going to skip through this, I'm not going to read all of these verses, but verse 1, Isaiah talking to Israel says, cry aloud and do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, speaking to Isaiah the prophet, this is what you need to tell him. Declare to my people their transgression, <laughs> to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And they ask, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. And in verse 5, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. And then down in verse 9, towards the end of that verse, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, well, then shall your light rise in the darkness. And then verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Lord, I pray for your words um, to come through today clear and uh, powerful into our hearts that it would be a, a work of your spirit, not a, an effort of my, of, my, uh, of my mouth this morning, that your word would be a light and a lamp. It's in your name that we pray, amen. My first job was as a booking agent. Aaron, it's basically legalized musician trafficking, uh, is what it is. Um, I was in Atlanta, Georgia. A guy, my boss was a guy named Chuck Tilly, who was a good man and uh, still friends to this day. And I, uh, my job was basically to get on the phone and to book shows every day. Well, one weekend in Atlanta, and I don't know if you've been to Atlanta in the summer, but it's not pleasant. The heat is just oppressive. You can taste it, right? It's, so I thought one weekend I'm going to be really helpful to my boss. There was a storage facility that they had, and I spent the entire Saturday cleaning and organizing out the storage facility. I had old 
you know, tapes and CDs, just what you would expect from an old music business company, just stuff stacked everywhere. So I went in on Monday to uh, tell Chuck what I had done, kind of expecting an attaboy. You know, attaboy, that's awesome. Glad you did that. So you can imagine my surprise when he was uh, at best underwhelmed. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I understood later what he was underwhelmed by until I was, a, I was an agent at another company and I was, uh, I'd sit at my phone and uh, make calls. This is before wireless technology allowed a guy like me to just wander around. When, later when I owned my own company, you could find me laying down on the couch in anybody's office just booking shows. And, but then you had to sit at your desk and do it. There was no other option. So I was, I was coming back getting, uh, from getting coffee, and my boss was a guy named Charles Doris, who is a kind and saintly human being. To this day is one of the ones I'll probably be mowing his yard in heaven for a thousand years. Just a good guy. He pulled me into his office, and he said, Darren, why don't you let Brian get your coffee for you? Brian was my assistant. And I said, well, Charles, I can get my own coffee. You know, I'm a, I'm a grown man. I mean, I, I, this is what I'm thinking. I, I, don't, I would feel awkward having Brian get my coffee. And Charles said these words, Darren, I pay you too much to get your own coffee. Now, on the surface, that feels like, whoa, that's kind of a jerk thing to say. But what he was saying was, Darren, that five minutes that you took to go down the hall to get coffee, you could have been sitting at your desk booking a show, making money for the company. That's what I'm paying you to do. We pay Brian to get the coffee. We pay Brian to do the paper, which paperwork, I had no problem letting Brian do the paperwork. <laughs> and as I look at this, I, I feel like that all of us in, in our lives, if, well, if you've read, how many of you have read the Gary Smalley Five Love Languages book? If you haven't, you're young married. It's really a fun exercise. <laughs> um, but the idea is that the way that you give love sometimes is the way that you receive it. So you could be your wife is a little mad at you, so you go and wash dishes to try to make her feel better, and now she's more mad, and you're like, well, what? I, but I, they were gross. So, but if her, her language, the way that she receives love is through words of affirmation, but I'm showing her acts of service, she's not receiving it in the way that I'm giving it. And we've all experienced that over the years, the way that we give love, receive is we, the way we thought we were looking for the attaboy, tap on the back, but what we got instead was a, well, I really didn't understand. And what I feel like is happening in James that's important for us as a church, important for us as individuals. A lot of time we could focus on faith versus works or faith and works or that, and, and we will get to, that'll be a lot of fun. But wouldn't it be good to know what James was talking about when he talks about works? Like, what works is it that he's talking about? Francis Chan says that our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things that don't matter. We can, I, was, I was talking with uh, Jason Kuhn as we were going to lead worship the other night at uh, Place of Hope, and he was talking about the, with the church leaders and how we were super unified, but we were unified going in the wrong direction. And, and I feel like as us as individuals that we can get to the end of our lives, at the end of our walk with the Lord and stand before him. And he, I don't think he's going to be mad, but it's going to be like, man, I did all this and I did this and I did that. And he might say, Darren, I paid too much for you to go get your own coffee. <laughs> I paid too much for you to spend all your energy and all your time on these things that didn't really ultimately matter. And when I look at the works, the word works here, there's lots of things in the New Testament that are works, that refer to the works. Jesus' miracles were works. When the lady broke the alabaster box on her, 
and poured the oil on his feet before his crucifixion. He said, don't let this good work go, you know. He called that a good work. But if you're wondering what James is talking about, you don't have to because he tells us. He tells us what good works are, at least the ones he's talking about, the ones he's referring to. Are miracles when God heals somebody great works? Absolutely. But he says here, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, yes, faith doesn't have works, and he talks about a brother being poorly clothed and you didn't help him. He'll talk about orphans and widows, that that's, that's the religion that our Father is seeking. And the reason I read to you from Isaiah this morning is that in that passage, in that prophecy to the people of Israel, I, saw, <laughs> I see three things. I see, one, this alarming, startling importance of what maybe the world would call social justice, I would say it's Jesus justice. This alarming importance of, of what it really means for us as Christians and believers. Startling importance of it. Baked into the entirety of scripture of our care for those who can't possibly care for themselves. I see the alarming importance of it. I see that he gives a definition here that is an all-encompassing explanation of what it actually really means to care for those who are in need. And then he shows us how we get the ability to do this. The alarming importance to me, I look in verse two and I see that this is a description of this important this, they're doing great, they're fasting, they're going to church every Sunday, they're tithing, they're sitting in the front row, they're lifting their arms in worship at the time when the song says to lift your arms, putting them down when the song doesn't say it. They are in. And in and of itself, there was nothing wrong with those things, but he was saying, you're falling short. And he gives a clue in verse three when he says that you oppress your laborers. But he goes right after it in verse 6. So verse 3 says, you, Behold the day of your fast. You're seeking your own pleasure. You're, you're oppressing your workers. And in verse 6, he goes right after it and says, Now, this, is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Startling because if our walk with the Lord doesn't have that baked into it, He's, he's, there's an element of this in the Christian walk that is central, not tertiary, but central. Proverbs 14.31, he talks about, you know, if you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. Proverbs 19.17, if you give a gift to the poor, you actually give a gift to God. Psalm 68, one of the things that he does throughout the scripture is he identifies himself by what he does. And if, if I introduce myself, and you know, hey, I'm Darren Tyler, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a, a pastor, I identify myself by what, I do lots of things, right? But those are things that are central to what I do. And over and over again in scripture, God introduces himself as the father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, because that's just what he does. He talks about it in Zechariah 7, Isaiah 1, further earlier on in this book, he talks about it. When Job, in chapter 29 of Job, when Job is saying, God, I did all these things that you asked me to do, he says, I was defending the widow, I was caring for orphans, I was baked into the scripture. And you're like, okay, Darren, that's Old Testament, but you don't really see that in the New Testament. Jesus, when he confronted the Pharisees, what did he say? You, you're really good at tithing, you're, you're giving the exact 10 percentage, but you're devouring the poor, and you're destroying the widows. The early church in Acts 2.42, 
shows the church born out of a brand new church being born. And it says they're devoted to four things. You've heard me talk about those four things. To prayer, to teaching, to breaking of bread, a Jewish idiom for the, the Lord's Supper, and to fellowship. And that word fellowship is the word koinonia. If you've been around since the 70s, you've known that there are Christian coffee houses all up and down the West Coast called the Koinonia House. And koinonia was fellowship, and it means, definitely means sitting in a circle in a living room and talking about and, and diving into life with each other, but it, do, it means so much more than that. They were devoted, remember, devoted to these four things. And what does it say happened that they, as the chapter goes on, they sold their things and they helped those who were around them in need as the Lord led, not as the government dictated. As the Holy Spirit was leading them, they, they began to give and to do things. In Romans 15, chapter 15, I think verse 26, and again in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 13, Paul talks about an offering that was being taken from the church in Macedonia all along Paul's missionary journey, collecting this money that he was going to give to the saints in Jerusalem who were under persecution and famine, who were poor and oppressed. And he says in both those verses, he talks about, we're giving you this gift he, he, the word is translated distribution. But the word he uses in the Greek is the word koinonia. We are sending you our fellowship. They were devoted to four things. And I say startling, that there's a startling importance to this because when James talks about works and he speaks of it specifically about caring for the what, what the, uh, the Old Testament, there's the quartet of the, of the, of the vulnerable. There's the poor, there's the immigrant, there's the widow, uh, and, and there's the fatherless. Th th these four things that he talks about over and over again. And Micah talks about doing justice. And why I say it's startling is that I think that in our fellowship, every once in a while I'll hear one of us say, and I'm not angry about it, why it's, I think we should start spending money on ourselves now. Or it's about time we get to spend some money on our own building. About time we... I get it. I totally get it. These chairs are a proof that I get it. If you're new here, you don't know. We sat on like chiropractic adjustment, $10 chairs. Like we kept every chiropractor in a 30-minute <laughs> radius in business with those chairs. I get it that it's okay. That's why I talked last week. We don't have to feel guilty that God has blessed us. We just need to treat it with the honor and the respect like Frodo in the ring to understand that there's a power in this, that it's a precious gift that we've been given and to not hoard it and to hold on to it, but to give it away. It is a startling importance because I would say to you that this type of a ministry isn't something that they started, it was just who they were in the early church. It wasn't a program that they started, it was just who they were. And it's startling to me because I want that to be a part of who we are. That the proof of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the tree is the proof that it, what it is. He says the fruit of the Spirit isn't whether or not I can pray in tongues or whether or not I can prophesy. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And I want that to be a sign of me and inside of you. And it is startlingly important to say that when we are starting churches in the Western culture especially, that right up importance with the worship team and with the children's ministry and the youth ministry, all good things that all, like right in, in line with that, that as a church, it is startlingly important for us to bake this into the culture of who we are.
he gives us such a great definition, the Lord does, of what justice actually is. Not social justice, but Jesus justice. There's a book by a guy named Mark Sandel who was a uh, political philosophy professor at Harvard and he wrote this book called The, the Right Thing to Do and he's talking specifically about social justice and saying, he basically would say that in Western culture, specifically in American culture, that there are three, he says three specific definitions of what justice is. And in those three, that they're very narrow definitions and that everybody thinks that their definition is the definition, which is why, we, whether it's political opponents or jurists or protesters, that we all say that we have the right definition and everybody else is wrong because we've defined it so narrowly. But not as a teacher of the Bible. <laughs> the Bible defines it very broadly with very sophisticated and complex language. And I'm going to just give you three really quick for the time that we have. That Number one is equal treatment. That when he says, did you not share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your home? In Leviticus 24.32, baked into the language of their law was to say that the immigrant and the alien, that they were to have the same rights as those who were born in the land. That is a very controversial statement in our culture. But I'm saying in the culture of the, of the church, I have no commentary on what the culture of our country is. I only have a commentary on what the culture of our church should be. We are a chosen people, a holy people, a righteous nation called out to be. And because of that, we can say that no one, everybody is treated equally. Special concern for vulnerable populations. He talks about that, that when he talks about Loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps. Verse 6 of Isaiah 58. Undo the straps of the yoke. He, within a hour radius of this building, our children, Joanne, you know this because you teach in a school that is surrounded mostly by prosperous neighborhoods, but it's also hidden in between are these little rural homes with children who don't have the same chance as our children do. That in, it's, it, one of the things that we see a lot on the news is what's happening in inner city poverty, but what we don't hear as much about is that in rural poverty, the children are waking up in the morning, and of course, in, you know, in our political culture, the liberals will say, well, that's, we, you know, we need to get a better government system. The conservatives will say, well, that's because of the family breakdown. But no, what nobody's saying is that, you know what, that three-year-old should do a better job. The three-year-old should demand that his mom is going to read to him. The seven-year-old should be demanding of her parents to get her into a better school system. Not, whatever you think it is, what we know it's not is it's not the children. And what he's saying here, and I believe it's in Proverbs 31, when he talks about opening, yet yeah, it's 31, 8 through 10, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. He didn't say open your checkbook. He said open your mouth to speak on behalf of them. We had an example of this happen in our own church family. And I say this not even as a heaviness because I'm actually celebrating a lot of what I already see in our church family. Jeremy and Amber had a, a young couple just around the corner from them. They grew up, I knew the, the situation they grew up in and this, uh, the, the, the parents were long gone. They were in an abusive situation and this young couple that had not had a good educational chance, had, had, she had gotten pregnant. And everybody was telling her, abort this baby. I don't know if you can think of any more voiceless than an unborn child 
But what Jeremy and Amber did was they didn't go out in front and put a picket sign in front of their house. They invited them into their home and loved on them. And in the middle of the night, I mean, they've got a brand new baby themselves. They're getting none sleep at all. And they're getting to the hospital and helping this young couple. And you know what happened? That little baby was adopted by another family. And that little voice who didn't have a voice at that time, someone spoke up on his behalf and was a voice to the voiceless. Loving on these kids. As a church family, to give equal treatment, to speak up for those, and of course, generosity. I don't really need to spend any time on that in our church family. $381,000, we put our money where our mouth is. I just invite us this year to put our mouth where our money is. And I would ask you, of course, are you feeling guilty at this point? Um, It won't be enough. Even if you're feeling guilty for not feeling guilty, it won't be enough. Because the power to do this doesn't come from us guilting or shaming ourselves or each other into it. I shared a little bit last week, and I want to read it to you this morning, this quote from Beatrice Webb. Beatrice Webb, who was known as the, uh, the architect of the modern, uh, of the, the British welfare state. She was born in 1890. And when she gave birth to this welfare nation that she had envisioned, she said, I've staked, this is her writings, I've staked all on the goodness of human nature. Our challenge as a people is, we think if I just get the machines right, if I just get the social thing right, if I just get a pro, in the church world, if I just start a program right, then we fix the problem. But towards the end of Beatrice's life, this is what she wrote. Brilliant woman. I now realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man and how little you can count on changing them by any change in the social machinery. And and listen to this. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse in the human heart. What gives us the power to do this is not guilt or self-interest. The reason we don't do it is, I don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. But what Beatrice Webb was saying, without even knowing that she was saying that it had nothing to do with the machinery and everything to do with our hearts transformed by the power of the gospel inside of us. That any sort of a view towards justice that has a self-interest in it is actually not curbing the bad impulse, it's feeding the bad impulse. Selfless acts done for selfish reasons are part of the bad impulse. And sure, some things can happen that can be good for us and we can be kind. And, but you know how it is. When you've done it for your own reasons, then you begin to feel entitled about it. Then you begin to feel like, well, I've done this and I kind of... Remember, when Jerry, remember the Jerry Lewis telethon? Anybody old enough to remember those? I was always super bummed when they came on because it meant that my favorite shows were not going to be on. But old Jerry would look into the camera at some point and say, yeah, you write a check and you can look at yourself Monday morning, look in the mirror and say, I'm a good person. And it just further imbibes, imbibes, is that the word? Someone get the nouns, the verbs. It further brings out the bad impulse inside of us. There's an approach to justice 
in which that is the means of it to get something. I do this and then something good happens for me. There's another approach that says that this is the vision of who God is. And I am partnering with him in this earth to do what he already wants to do. And my invitation for us as a church family is to take that approach this morning. The approach that comes from Jesus himself. Keep in mind, he said to a male-dominated culture, I identify with the widow. He said to a tribal culture, bloodlines and it's all about our family. He said to that culture, I identify with the immigrant. That's a bold statement for God. And you won't find it. You can search through all the ancient legal systems, all the ancient codes, all the ancient religions. You won't find anyone, any God that identifies with those at the bottom of the ladder. Jesus himself became poor that you might become rich. Jesus had to ride into town on a borrowed donkey. You know why? Because he didn't own one. Jesus, the last thing he owned was the shirt on his back and they took it. Buried in a borrowed tomb because he identified with those. And I know that the temptation is to say, well, then we all should become poor so that that way we could identify better. That's not the heartbeat of God at all. I would say the, the opposite because if he, again, he could make it rain sandwiches in Haiti right now if he wanted to. But he didn't. He chose the body of Christ to implement the ideas of the head to be the implementation of those ideas into the world. You and I just have the privilege, the honor, the great privilege, the terrible privilege, the wonderful privilege of treating that ring with the honor that it is due. And by remembering and reminding ourselves that it is only the gospel, it is only grace that both humbles and bolsters me. Humbles me because I was broken and I was tired and I was sinful and I, I didn't have the good impulses in me. That humbles me. It bolsters me because Jesus chose me, because he chose you, because he chose us. It humbles us and it bolsters us. And with our eyes on the cross, we don't have to go start a program. We just go be Jesus to each other. The reason I am hammering right now on our small group, our deeper group environments, is it's in those groups where we can circle the wagons together for each other. It's in those groups that we can then begin to look outward into our own communities. It's in those groups, and we see it happen right now. It's happening in our Facebook group. Somebody, they need diapers for the pregnancy center. Somebody needs this, and, and people will rise up and help. It ha we are just naturally doing that. And I'm so proud of us for that. I'm so proud of you guys for that. But as you go today, don't go with a feeling of guilt. Go with a feeling of the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you leading you to go and to do the good works. He paid way too much for you to do busy stuff that doesn't really matter. He paid way too much for you to get to the end of your life and to say, I did this and I cast out demons. I did. I, he says, I didn't even know you. He paid way too much for us to be busy trying to defend our fiefdoms and our religions and our traditions and 
He paid for us to have the same power that raised Christ from the dead to dwell inside of us and to say to a world that says that that child in Haiti is worthless. That's what the enemy says, but that's not what the kingdom of God says. Kingdom of God says he's of infinite worth, of infinite value. And when we go there, we're putting a flag in the ground and saying, this is a picture of the kingdom to the world. Let's move forward with a vision of justice for our community that is not about an ends to a, a means to an end, but about an end itself, which is God himself. Move forward with the definition of what James is talking about, the faith without what kind of works? These kind of works is dead. Move forward with that. Not with guilt, not with shame, because all that is is feeding that desire, but instead the gospel of Jesus Christ rising up on the inside of you. Would you stand with me? When Aaron sings, greater things are yet to be done in this city, I do not believe that to be hypothetical. I believe it to be actual and true. And it starts with you and with I letting that spirit rise inside of us and lead us. Father, would you give us power and insight and courage into your word of what it looks like, a reminder that faith without works is dead, but it is these kinds of works that you spoke of specifically today these kinds of works that we get to do in our city and in our nation and around the world. This year, Lord, I pray that we continue to open our checkbooks and I, can, oh, I pray that we continue to open our hearts and our lives and our homes and our families to identify with who you identify with. Thank you for the privilege that you've given us. Let us not squander it this week, but to be reminded of the, the cross, the power that you paid. You paid too much for us to sit around. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.